turn together now to Paul's first letter to Timothy and chapter 3, and we can read at verse number 14. 1 Timothy 3, at verse number 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. And so on down to the end of the chapter. Now, you will have noticed from the weekly bulletin, at least if not from anywhere else, that the Free Church has agreed on what the Church's vision is. And the vision of the Church is to have a healthy Gospel Church in every community. And we want to think about that and to think about what healthy looks like and what the Bible tells us is, in fact, a healthy Church. So, how can we be that healthy Church? And we know there are many elements involved in that, beginning, of course, with with prayer, beginning, of course, with the reviving of God uh, and going through the way in which the gospel is preached and the way in which we are to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ in our preaching, in our conversation and in the way that we live. And if we are saying that our vision is for a healthy gospel church in every community in Scotland, it does imply at least the possibility that there are unhealthy churches. And so we want to examine what the Bible says from this passage tonight and from various other passages in the weeks that are to come. And it is interesting as we read this letter and turn to this letter that Paul is telling Timothy to remain in Ephesus. And everything he is saying to to Timothy in Ephesus, he is saying, for the good of the church. There are many warnings given uh, through Timothy to these people. And when we read our Bibles in Revelation chapter 2, we realize that the church is in serious danger. And we visit Ephesus today, and there is no sign of the church of Jesus Christ, as far as we can see. And so it's interesting that we can think about the background to this letter, the developments in that very place where Timothy was found and how an unhealthy church can lead to no church at all. And that's what's alarming and that's why a healthy gospel church is important. When we do read through the letter, we we see the way in which Paul is reminding Timothy with which he has that close relationship that there are failures in the community of the people of God where Timothy is found. There are those who are false disciples, false apostles, false teaching. There are those who are not sincere in their faith. There are those who are living their lives as they please. There are so many ways in which the people in Ephesus are failing. And that is why Paul is concerned for the future of the church and the importance of Timothy being there so that, with the blessing of God, the church will indeed have a future. And so we focus in on these two verses, uh, these three verses at the end of this chapter, which in many ways bring us to the very heart of this letter. Everything works towards this, and everything works away from it. And from these central verses, we want to think of the character and the purpose of the church. 
The first thing you want to notice is that we have in the passage practice what the church should be doing, what the people of God should be doing, what those who live in the church should behave like. And that's the way in which Paul launches in in verse 15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. And there is underlying the very way in which Paul is speaking to Timothy with the sense of necessity. It's a necessity that arises from God himself and from the purposes of God. And at one level, there is a necessity for everyone to know how to behave. Behavior is so important. It's so important in families. It's so important in communities. It's so important in their education system. Behavior is important at every level of society. And in general terms, by the very fact of our being created by God and having the law of God written on our hearts, that we are all to behave in a particular way to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and to love our neighbour as ourselves. And in general practical terms, we can ask what that looks like. And the simple way of understanding it is that everyone receives justice in their relationships with each other. So what God requires of us all in our relationship with him, then we duly serve him as he calls us so to do. That shapes our lives in the presence of God and in accordance with the law of God. There is also the justice required that you have rights in your relationship with me and vice versa. And so we have with everyone in society, loving our neighbour as ourselves. And if everyone receives their rights in all of the relationships, then behaviour shapes a community, shapes a society that is based on the word of God and that develops in that way as a society that reflects the fear of God and the word of God working daily in their lives. There is that general necessity that comes from God for the whole of humankind. And how relevant is that in the day in which we live when in so many ways there is the impression at least maybe because of the silence of many, there is the impression that, that society is living apart from God, separate from God, in the denial of God, and living life in a way that pleases, driven by giving expression to the desires of their own hearts and ignoring the requirements of God. How one ought to behave. But in particular, Paul's concern is how one behaves in the church. How one ought to behave in the household of God. And yes, we can think of of the house as the building. We can think of it as the building within which a family lives. We can focus on on bricks and mortar and the way in which there are houses in which we live and houses in which we worship God. But that's not the way in which Paul is using this word. He is referring to the 
to the model of living, where he's referring earlier to, to those who are going to be elders in the church, if they cannot manage their own household, how can they care for the church of God? So, so Paul is looking at behavior of the people of God within the church of God. The household is the household of faith. And we see in different ways in the New Testament itself, the way in which that's how the church is named and described. We see in Hebrews chapter 3 that Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant, but Jesus is counted of more glory because he is the builder of the house and the builder has more honour than the house itself, the household of faith. And Peter, in chapter 4 of his first epistle, speaks of the way in which judgment must begin at the household of God. How one ought to behave in the household of God. And we read through the chapters that have come before this. And what do we find? We find that Paul is telling Timothy how we should pray and who we should pray for. We, we see that he is telling what men should be doing in the household of God in the church. We see that he is telling us what women should be doing in the household of God in the church. We see the way in which he in detail looks at the role of every person within the, the church of God uh, to ensure that they understand how they are to behave themselves because of God's requirement and necessity, how they are to behave themselves within the church of God. And that's so important. If we're looking at good health, we expect the signs that confirm that. And we expect the children of God to live by and to promote the, the standards of the Word of God and to do that in all aspects of behaviour within the Church of God and within the world in which we live. And all of us tonight, we have that responsibility that when our behaviour does not correspond to the way in which God requires us to behave as those who belong to his church, when our behaviour doesn't reach that standard, then the name of the Lord Jesus is brought into disrepute. The witness of the gospel begins to crumble and to fail. And instead of enjoying the, the, the power and the presence of God, then it results in going through the motions. It results in the ordinariness of, of life that creeps into our very participation in the church of God and in the worship of his name it leads to ordinariness in everything. And it leads to, to the loss of that sense of the power of God, the God whom we are called to worship and to serve, and to whom we ought to give our lives as a living sacrifice. The practice. How does your life, how does my life, how tonight does our life lives together, how do we give evidence that we are doing what God requires us to do, what God expects us to do? 
How do we go from here and go into our world tomorrow? And, and how do we live as the children, as the people of God? There's a practice that's important in our worship. There's a practice that's important in our relationship with each other. There's a practice that is important in our relationships with all those who are around us. And the sign of a healthy gospel church that is working in accordance with God's design is that the word speaks through the lives of all those who are the people of God. There is the practice that is characteristic of the life of the church that is sincerely serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, and closely associated with that, if, if there is practice, there is protection. We are here to protect. It's a great responsibility that, that God has given you and I to protect the very things that belong to him, that he has entrusted to us the things that belong to our salvation and that belong to his purpose and grace. And the first thing that we are to protect is the very presence of God. And when Paul is speaking about the church as the household of God, he goes on to speak of the church of the living God. The church are the ecclesia, those who are called out from where they are and called to serve, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul speaks in writing to the Corinthians that we are called into the fellowship of a son. And that's the, the call of the gospel that calls us from where we are to become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what the catechism calls the effectual call of God. That summons people that comes with the power, as if it were, contained in the call itself. So that persuasively we sense that God is calling us and we cannot but respond, not only because it's irresistible, but because the power comes in the call itself that enables us and that gives us to, to respond, as if it were, so naturally and so willingly. And those called out ones, they are the church of the living God. And that was the distinction in the Old Testament, of course. The God was the living God of the people of God. All other gods were idols dumb. They had ears and, and eyes and mouths. They, they wouldn't respond to anything. But here is the church of the living God. But especially the church of the living God in the sense of the presence of God. That was the mark of the people of God in the Old Testament. This day says Joshua to the people who were crossing the Jordan and who are going to inherit the promised land. Know that the living God is among you. That's why the nations trembled. They, they knew something of the powerful presence of God. It made the people of God fearless as they went on to, to inherit the land. And as they captured their enemies, the covenant presence of God. I will dwell among you. 
You shall be my people, and I will be your God. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. The church of the living God. And in, we come into the New Testament, and Paul says to the, to the church in Corinth, Do you not know? What do they not realize? Do you not know that you, the people of God in Corinth, do you not know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Taking what was true in the Old Testament, applying it to this congregation in Corinth and reminding them that they themselves were the temple collectively of the Spirit of the presence of God. The living God was among them. And because that was true, there was a, not only a responsibility, there was an expectation. And the expectation was that because of the presence of God, that that itself was the inspiration for them to live a life that would be pleasing to God. The God who says, you shall be holy because I am holy. It's the God who is with them. And the more sensitive they are to the living presence of God, the more their behavior will be changed. Changed, dare we say, to bring about success. We see David going out to face Goliath. Who is this that defies the armies of the living God. This little lad and this giant that he was going to face, he was fearless. And he went out because he knew he belonged to the armies of the living God. And from a sling and from a from stone and from the sword of Goliath, he killed this giant. Success, power, fearlessness by protecting presence of God and perhaps not surprisingly reminding ourselves of where Timothy is Paul says to the church in Ephesus those who are the living God with them in Ephesus he says to them in chapter 4 do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God that the presence of God can be grieved in such a way suggesting that our misbehaviour or failure to practice what we should is the very means of offending God and of causing God to withdraw himself with the result that the Goliaths will kill David that the Goliaths will kill Saul with the result that fearlessness and power is replaced by weakness and trembling and, and running away. And we are called upon in that way to protect the very presence of God. And so tonight in, in your life personally, it's so crucial that you live your life to ensure that. That you, that you realize that because of the presence of God, you have a responsibility to look after your heart, to look after your life, so that the presence of God will remain with you. 
and so that you won't be afraid, but that you'll be strong, so that you will know success in what you do, in the sense of faithful service to God and living for God and seeing that the fruit of the Spirit of God in your life and ensuring that every day you rise that you sense that God indeed is your strength. And how often we get up in the morning and we're full of fears, full of anxieties, full of perhaps the thought of failure, of failing in our faith and failing in our service and failing in everything that God requires us to be. And so often it is because of the fact that we haven't protected the presence of the living God. And what is true personally is also true for the congregation, the church that has the living, the presence of the living God within it and within them and on them. And the responsibility that we have to guard that jealously and not to let anyone or anything interfere such a way as to grieve the very presence of God, that we love and cherish that as something that's more important than everything else and that everything else must give way in order that this is maintained, that we protect the presence of God. And there is also the need to protect the very truth of God. How can God expect you and me to protect his truth? That's what he requires. That's what Paul says here. which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That is the word of God itself. The scriptures contained in the Old and New Testament. The whole truths of the gospel, the very doctrines that are central to our understanding of God, our understanding of sin, our understanding of salvation, redemption, our understanding of the world around us, the doctrines that speak of the very essence and character of God and of all that he has done and of all that he has worked out for our salvation, the truth of the gospel, the truth as it is in Jesus, as Paul says, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And with regard to protecting that truth, there are two images that, that describe the way in which we are going to do that. And the first of these is the image of the pillar, the pillar that supports the building, that raises it up high so that it, it can be seen from afar. And the Paul who knew Ephesus knew full well that the temple of Artemis, the, the goddess Diana, the, the temple that was built for her in Ephesus, had more than a hundred columns or, or pillars to, to ensure that everyone in the surrounding area would see the glory of the goddess Diana. That's why it was built. And so much 
spent on ensuring that, that all of these pillars extended upward as far as possible to get the message as far as possible. It's promoting the truth. It's promoting it in such a way that the world knows that here is what God says. Thus says the Lord into every area of life, into our personal lives, into our church life, into our community life, into our national life, every way in which the truth speaks to us that we are protecting it by promoting it in the face of society and in the world in which we live. That is our responsibility. If we, if we go to Ephesus today, if my memory serves me right, there is one pillar left and a lump of stone and clay with, with plants growing out of that's what's left of the, the temple of the goddess Diana. It's hardly recognisable. You won't see it above, above the city. You'll see it at this level, driving past it if somebody points it out to you. It's disappeared. And that's an image of what can happen if, if we do not protect uh, the, the truth of God in the sense of promoting it in this way. It will simply vanish and disappear and people won't notice it. And passers-by will think nothing of it. And we will try and point them to the truth when it's failed in that way. And all they will see is what has crumbled because we have failed to make sure the pillars are strong and to keep the word of God up there and out there, promoting it as those who have been called so to do. And that's challenging. And that's where the presence of God is so important because the presence of God is, is the, the energy and the fuel that enables us to, to build as high as possible, that enables us to, to speak as loudly as possible. It's the presence of God that inspires the people of God to speak the truth of God and to speak it out loudly. Protecting the truth by promoting it. What do we do ourselves? What do you do? What do I do? Perhaps instead of promoting the truth that we actually hide behind it and hide behind the very things that we, we believe so that they won't be seen by the world around us. Promoting the truth. What do we do with the words that we learn, the teachings of the Bible? We have the responsibility to ensure that the word of God is promoted. And we have also the responsibility to ensure that the word of God is held as a buttress of the truth, that the church is a buttress of the truth. If I don't place a foundation under my pillar, then it's not going to last too long. There was a church on, on, on songs of praise and it was built in the 11th century, I think, in Carlisle. And it wasn't built on, on, a, on a sure foundation, built beautiful with, with beautiful arches. But because it wasn't built on the foundation, 
the archers began to fall and they lost their shape. They managed to repair them, but instead of being, being a circular arch, they're all kinds of shapes, and it's because there was no foundation. But the church is to be the buttress of the truth. That which gives the truth stability. That which gives it a sure foundation. That on which the church is built. Christ himself is the the cornerstone and the foundation. The church is built on the foundation of the prophets and of the apostles. And Christ is the chief cornerstone. But the church itself has the responsibility to give stability to the truth. And it is interesting that in the Old Testament, the idea of stability is never referred to things or to people. Stability belongs to to the permanence of God who sits on his throne and to the permanence of the throne of David because of the word of God. And it suggests to us that, that what God was doing in the Old Testament he has now entrusted to, to the church and the world that they will give that stability so that the word that, that is spoken, that is promoted, comes from the, the sure foundation of understanding the truth, of believing the truth, of living the truth. And so that what's promoted is not the reality of what's seen in the lives of, of those who are doing the promotion. And we, we all know that when something is marketed in such a way that it catches attention and we go to the product and it's nothing like that, it's worthless, it's meaningless, much more so with the gospel, with the truth of God. We have to promote not only what we believe but what's confirmed in our lives as those who are standing on the foundation which is Christ himself. And from there, we will be able to fulfill our purpose as those who are to protect the presence of God and to protect the truth of God. And in Ephesus, there are those who are bringing that very same truth and that very same gospel into disrepute by their behaviour and by their relationships with each other. The protection. And finally, there is a proclamation. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. It's a big thing. It's the mystery. It's what cannot be known or cannot be learned, but by the revelation of God. It remains hidden in the heart of God. And even in the days of Daniel, that sense of mystery that belongs not only to what God has purposed, but that belongs to the future. And only as God makes that known can we know the mystery. And here it is, the mystery of godliness. And we can ask, 
what does godliness mean? And the straightforward answer is that, that Paul wants to make a connection with their between their experience and all that Christ himself is. And in that way, to provide an experiential basis of the grace of God in Christ Jesus as a thing which is at the centre of what they are doing and is that which they proclaim. Godliness, in particular, has the way in which we conduct ourselves in our worship, in our response to the word of God, and how we bow down to him by giving him worship and service, by giving him our lives. It's that response to knowing God that gives us a humble heart and that makes a connection between our lives and our faith and our God. Godliness. Geologic. What describes the way in which a child of God lives their lives. Great is the mystery of godliness. What is it then that shapes their lives? What is it that informs all they are doing? It is the celebration of all that Christ is and has done. And the words that follow in verse 16, they are a song of celebration that was clearly used in the, in the days of Paul. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. And we can see the, the hymn of celebration, of, of proclaiming this Christ, the Christ that they experienced in, uh, and see that there are two sections to, to the song of celebration. And the first section speaks about the work of Jesus. He was manifest in the flesh. The Son of God came into this world. God became man. The marvel of the work of redemption at the center of our experience of what the gospel means is a level of understanding that for our salvation to be secured, that the Son of God had, had, had to become one of ourselves. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. In other words, in this resurrection, God recognized, accepted his finished work on the cross at Calvary. He came from heaven to die for our sins. He died for our sins, and God is saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. You fulfilled righteousness. You did all that I required. He is vindicated. He is seen by angels. And it's the image of, of the Son of God going into the glories of heaven and the angels themselves marveling at who is this King of glory. That the Son of God comes in in human flesh and enters into the throne room of God as someone who has successfully completed his mission and the work that God had given to him. And tonight, if we have the grace of God in our hearts and if we have the faith through which we have the salvation that God has promised, then 
the work of the Lord Jesus will, will be so marked in our experience that it will be our, our reflection and our meditation and our means of rejoicing every day. It's so ingrained in, in the, the fabric of the experience of grace that we cannot but see the finished work of Christ who died for us. And because it is so ingrained in, in the fabric of our experience, it's natural for us to, to proclaim that truth, the whole truth of the message of Jesus, and to make it known, as well as protecting it in the world. There is the mission of Jesus. Then there is the mission of the church itself. He is proclaimed among the nations. Go, says Jesus to the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. It's God's mission for the world through his church that this Christ is to be proclaimed to a lost world. And he is proclaimed among the nations. He is believed on in the world. It's a successful mission. We ought not be discouraged, but we should be encouraged that this healthy gospel church is serving the Lord Jesus and is doing so, proclaiming this truth that we ourselves have experienced and proclaiming it to the world with the assurance that Jesus will be believed on in the world. The purposes of God will be fulfilled and realized. The gospel will be as successful as Jesus was successful in securing a redemption on the cross and through the resurrection. And taken up into glory. Whose glory? His glory. And he at last has the glory when the whole of his church is found in around heaven's throne along with them. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Worthy is the Lamb, says those who are around the throne in Revelation 5. Worthy are you who, to, to open the books, to break the seals, because you are slain. The Lamb in the midst of the throne as if he had been slain. And the more the the church is built in the world, the more Jesus is believed in, the more he is glorified in heaven until at last his people are all glorified with them. And that Jesus that is part of the fabric of our experience and our godliness becomes the Jesus that we proclaim every day with our lives and with our words with our witness, with the assurance that God will, because he is present, will accompany that with power and will bring about a difference. The character and purpose of the church. The blessing it would be if, if we are part of this whole movement with all of us in good spiritual health and engaging together and are servers of God, then the world would see a difference because this is God's work 
and he has appointed the means through which it will go forward. And so may we be encouraged to think about where we are and what we are doing and perhaps what we are not doing. And as we go forward to see other aspects of how the life of the church works, let's remember these foundational things and be encouraged to continue believing and to continue to be faithful and loyal to the Christ who has saved us and who has called us to serve. May God bless his waters. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we do rejoice in you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God of our salvation, the God who is working in the lives of your people and in the marvel of your church in this world. Help us, O Lord God, to be the people of God that you have called us to be and help us to know blessing and direction and grace and strength day by day to live faithfully and to walk with you as our God and to be witnesses for you in promoting the truth and in protecting the truth and in protecting your presence day by day in life we do pray. Hear our prayer and accept us for Jesus' sake. Amen.